any one of the pastors here will know that when you preach a sermon, inevitably at the end of the sermon, someone will say something likely about it, and it'll be a good sermon, pastor, good sermon. And, and you hope that they're being truthful, not just merciful or kind. Um, there have been a number of ways that people have received sermons, when we moved from upstate New York in a town called Appalachian up in the Binghamton area down to New Cumberland in this eastern PA district, in the congregation was uh, a dear uh, of, 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 of the church and of the alliance by the name of Keith Bailey. And Keith had been our uh, had been divisional church president, church ministries president, and, and was a man of quite some good significance and influence. And uh, at that point in time or that season in his life, he was the executive director at Christian Publications and happened to be worshiping at New Cumberland where we, where we began. Keith was always a very gracious person. And so his comments would be from time to time uh, at the end of a message, he, will, he would say something like this. Pastor, you really got the food to the table today. So that, and I thought, well, that's a nice way to put it kind of thing. Uh, I have another friend that that used to pastor in, in a church, actually became a district superintendent in this district, who, who told me one time that, that a, a dear old lady at the end of the service would always come to him and uh, and say to him, Pastor, I can always be sure that, that uh, the sermon today is better than the one you're going to bring next week. And he said, I don't know if that was a compliment or not. But, but anyway, so just response, response kind of thing. I was talking with one pastor who had a lot of new converts in his congregation, and a couple of them, one in particular, came from kind of a biker gang. And so he probably had a few rough edges on him. And so he came in, and then he listened to the sermon. Going out, he said, Pastor, that was one hell of a sermon. I thought, okay, what do we do with that? You know, kind of thing. So I suppose there can be any number of ways that you can respond to a sermon uh, and and there, I'm sure there are stories as well. But the, this passage in particular from Acts chapter 2 we'll read in a speed read uh, because it's a lengthy portion of Scripture. Uh, <clears throat> it is, is, is a message that Peter brings to an audience that's been kind of amazed at some happenings, but a bit perplexed. You know, what's going on here? And so his message uh, is to try to provide an answer to that. It's, it's, it's in the realm of what we call apologetics, that it, not apologizing, but apologetics, giving a defense of what's been happening and, and the reason for the hope that we have in Christ. So let me go to that passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. And I'm going to read all the way down to verse 41. Just hang on or hold on or read on as best you can, and, and we'll go from there. And I, don't, I mean no disrespect to the import of the content, but it's, it's, a, it's a long portion, and yet it has a lot to share. And then we'll, we'll pull it apart and hopefully put it back together again at the end to make sense uh, of it uh, for our purposes today. So verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. <clears throat> Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. 
No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, in heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you know, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy, with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the, of, of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor his body CDK. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And that's a long portion of scripture and that's quite a mouthful of things to talk about. I could, I could easily take three weeks to pull that thing apart and deal with each piece. But I'm going to compress it today and leave you to work on that sermon in terms of as you chew on it. But there are a few basic things that I want to capture that are, I believe are components to what makes a good sermon. And, and uh, for some people, it's, uh, <laughs> it's trying to find something that's relevant to talk about. For some people, it's it's having a particular delivery. Billy Sunday was a famous baseball player converted into an evangelist, and he would stand on a pulpit and preach. 
you know, just all kinds of animation uh, that was going, and it was delivery for him as much as content, all trying to convey the importance of the of the preaching of God's word. So what makes a good sermon? Is it because the biblical truths are declared? Is it because they're great illustrations? Uh, when we lived in Johnstown and we're in the Alliance Church, there was a retired pastor. His name was Bob Bear. And I love to listen to Bob preach because he had such great stories. He, 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 regardless of what else happened, you know you were going to get good stories from Bob. And he would just talk about people that he had known and, and contact with and stories of how they illustrated a particular point in the scripture. So uh, stories are important. I think they're like windows. We always describe them as windows on the content of the building that you're building. Um, when you're in when you're in seminary, you, you go through this course called homiletics. That's where they teach you how to preach. In theory, teach how to preach. And then once you get out in, in the real world, you forget about all that stuff and just kind of say, Holy Spirit, I need your help here. And then, and then figure it out from there. Uh, that doesn't discount some of the things or ways that can be very helpful. But so this morning, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pull this passage apart a little bit and talk about some of the components that go into what makes a good message, what makes a good sermon. And this was quite some sermon. Not everything that happens every time somebody preaches happens like it happened here. This was in some ways just kind of new territory, but it, it certainly... Uh, it made him sit up and pay attention. So, and if you have trouble going to sleep in the sermon this morning, uh, that's okay. I heard a story about it. The, the pastor was preaching, and he noticed there were several people that had fallen asleep. He said to the head usher, he said, go over there and wake those people up. The head usher said, you put them to sleep, you wake them up. <laughs> so I, I don't know how you want to work that uh, kind of thing. So I hopefully I won't put anybody to sleep. But here's, the, here's where we're going to go this morning. First, I want to look at the component of the prophetic perspective of God. The prophetic perspective of God. Peter pulls a portion of scripture from the book of Joel, Old Testament minor prophet, that, that is fulfilled in the event of Pentecost. Remember, we talked about Pentecost several weeks ago now. We talked about it in terms of it being a feast of harvest. And, and there was this great ingathering that was being set up for the church to experience when the Holy Spirit came upon it and breathed life into its message and into its people and boldness and confidence, a holy boldness. They were able to declare the truth of God. And God confirmed the word with works and signs that followed. Some amazing things occurred. And we'll still get into those as we get into the chapters 3 and 4 and some other amazing stories that, that have yet to come but he quotes from Joel chapter 2, and he makes the connection of this present circumstance of these people that are speaking in these tongues, these languages, and everybody seems to have the ability to understand the truth that's being declared. And so someone said, well, that's almost a miracle in itself that not only can be spoken, but can be understood by people. Be that as it may, regardless of how that all sorts out. It's the present circumstance that's, that's interpreted in light of the prophetic past uh, prophecy of God from Joel chapter 2. When we talk about prophecy, sometimes we think about somebody who's looking down the tunnel of time to what's going to happen. When we started in New Cumberland a number of years ago, they had a habit. They had a custom where in, the, in September they had their anniversary month. 
And in that month, they would schedule in guest speakers um, past past practice. And so we thought, well, that makes sense. Well, we'll just continue some of that. And uh, so we would have guest speakers in. I remember one year, more than one, t- more than one time, we had a fellow in by the name of Nathan Meyer, Dr. Nathan Meyer. And he was big into prophecy. He could tell you what all the horns meant on the beasts and, and what was going to happen next in the timeline of Israel. And he would go into great detail and wrote lots of books and he had it all figured out. I didn't have it figured out, but he did. And so, uh, you know, he just knew what it seemed like. But he, he had these prophecy conferences that he would hold. And uh, for that particular emphasis, it was more like this is what's going to happen. This is looking down the tunnel of time. Prophecy can have that aspect. I talked about three aspects of prophecy. One is foretelling, F-O-R-E, telling. That is looking ahead. It's predictive of the future, what may happen. And, uh, you know, you can can do a study in the book of the Revelation. You can do a study in the book of Daniel or Ezekiel and try to interpret or understand what it is that that prophet is saying in terms of what's going to happen down the road. People can get enamored with that. And that's okay, except you don't always want to anchor the whole situation or issue to what might happen down the road because we start thinking about what's going to happen down the road. We lose track of what we need to be doing here and now. So it, we, we've got to keep that whole thing in balance. And, and there may be a futuristic perspective in terms of that prophetic perspective. And, and certainly it was true for Joel as he por- portrays or prophesies what's going to happen. And, and this is what, in fact, does occur in Acts chapter 2. There's also foretelling that is informational or informative side of things uh, for the purpose of telling from that side. So that's more just the declaration kind of thing. But then there's the foretelling side And this is the proclamation side of prophecy. You can talk about spiritual gifts in the church, and we talk about the gift of prophecy, and we might think of that in terms of being able to see what's going to happen, who's going to come through the door next, or when the person's going to get saved, or whatever. But but that that gets to be a little bit difficult to discern. Uh, But without question, when you talk about this prophetic perspective, it certainly is the thus saith the Lord, and it's the declaration. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's the preaching of the word of God. And that's prophetic. That There's always that role. The, the, the man who stands behind the lectern or the desk or the pulpit or whatever it is that he's working from uh, always has the, the privilege to be a herald of God and can never forget that, nor can he relinquish that responsibility and privilege. He always is mindful of the fact that His responsibility is to be a herald of God, to declare the unsearchable riches of God. And you do that. That's part of what the prophetic uh, purpose and role is. So there's that component, capturing the passage from Joel chapter 2. Then there's also the component of the purposeful plan of God. I guess I'm in an alliteration mode here at this point. The purposeful plan of God. And it comes out in the language, as he put it, in chapter 2 and verses 22. Men of Israel, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you knew yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And so there's that that component of the purposeful plan of God. And in that, 
There are things that occurred uh, not only that day, but day after day in terms of the life of the church as it continued to grow. I, I just put three of them down in the passage that we just read, where, where it talks about verse 22, talks about the miraculous element of things. The plan included miraculous things that were not able to be predicted. In our in our world, we have a cause and effect kind of relationship. And so if you get a disease and it's a serious disease, it will inevitably lead to death. Unless something happens that gets intervening in that process, and sometimes that can be a, a, a medical kind of intervention, and sometimes it can be simply supernatural intervention. God shows up, and the unexplainable, it just it, how can that be? Somebody just experiences a touch of God. And you don't have to tune into the 700 Club to wait and see what's going to happen. You know, you can, you, you, there, are, there are multiple places where God can show up and demonstrate his miraculous power. That is by nature the definition of a miracle. I don't explain. I can't explain. God is in that thing. And the miraculous happened. That's one of the uh, part of the purposeful plan of God. The unthinkable. Look at verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Whenever you read through that gospel account, the gospel accounts of the passion of the Christ, you, you see it set up, set up as a, as a conspiracy for the Jews to try to get rid of this guy that's rocking the boat too much. And so they, they, they do everything they can. They bribe the crowd. They influence the mob. They try to get, the, the, they don't get the right answer from this one. They go to another politician or another political leader until they get the answer they want. And the answer they want is, let's crucify him. So they put him to death. And Peter talks about, that's unthinkable. Why is it that a man who did so much good, who, who the scriptures say went about doing good, why is it that he would be the one who should, who should pay uh, for such treachery and, and experience the death on a cross. It's unthinkable, but that's exactly what happened because that was part of the purposes of God. He had knew the beginning from the end and, and was able to pull that off. And then you have the, the aspect of the unbelievable in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love that phrase. Death couldn't keep him down. Death could not keep him down. The power of God demonstrated in the out-resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that doesn't happen every Sunday. You don't go to, it doesn't happen every, well, I, there are some times maybe when somebody you think is needs to be resurrected from their service, you know, they've been sleeping too long or something like that. You bring them back to life, I suppose, maybe that kind of thing, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about. But it, but it, it was the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. And that's the miracle. That's the miracle of the resurrection. But it's all part of the purposeful plan of God. Peter quotes from a, a psalm of David, and he very purposefully uses David in Acts chapter 2 because that's his, his audience highly regards David, king of Israel, man after God's own heart. He, he uses him and showcases him 
to make his point, and he quotes from uh, a passage from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and he quotes that Davidic psalm to further make the case that God can even use the most difficult circumstances to accomplish his greater purposes. So I, 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 so here, here we are, 2019, and we're experiencing some tough spots. Or maybe you're dealing with some stuff physically. Or maybe there are some things emotionally or relationally that are really tough. God can still work through even the most difficult of circumstances to accomplish his purposes. And you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to simply resign yourself to the way things is. I know that's bad English, but that's okay. You don't have to resign yourself to that. You can, you can press into the God who does the unbelievable, the impossible, and is able to minister to you at your point of need or stress or whatever it may be. God is in that business of working his, comp- his plan and his purposes. Now, keep on moving with me. Keep on moving with me. Further, there's the component of the precious promises of God. This, this can be good. This can be good stuff. Verses 29 to 36. Here's a, uh, the, the quote where he talks about, where Peter talks about, I tell you with confidence, he says, Brothers, I can tell you with confidence that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. That's an unusual descriptor for David. King, shepherd of Israel, but prophet, there was a prophetic sense in which God said something to him, and it qualifies for this next part. He got, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. A promise that God made to David, yet unfulfilled in David's lifetime, looking down the tunnel of time. And now God begins to accomplish the fulfillment of his purpose and his plan in the, in the, in the selection of the Christ to, to be that promised descendant. Promised descendant in verse 30, we, we read that he was knew, promised on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. It was a promise. Uh, this is okay. This is a little Greek lesson. Uh, a promised paraclete. Now, I didn't say parakeet. I said paraclete. And it's a word that John uses uh, in, 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 John, in his gospel. He talks about, and, you, and I will, Jesus says, I will send you heteros parakletos. There's more Greek lesson for you. I'll send you another comforter. I comfort you. you know, let not your heart, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Don't get all your knickers and twist over this. It, let, let the peace of God minister to you, the presence of God, because I'm going to send you another comforter. And then John 15 talks about the nature of that and the work, but it's the paraclete. It's the promised comforter of God, the Holy Spirit, who is already being poured out here in Acts chapter 2 in the experience that people are being amazed and perplexed over. It's a promised descendant, a promised paraclete, and a promised person down in verse 36 puts it this way. Excuse me. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. That's Victor Borgay line, uh, colon there. 
be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so that component of the precious promises of God, uh, that this person, Jesus, was part of God's plan uh, to provide salvation for you and me. And, that, and he is still at work. And this is all part of the sermon. All part of the sermon to try to capture the hearts and minds of the people as they give attention to that truth. Now, I want to just hook on to something here for just a moment. Because God has given to us exceeding great promises. And sometimes people choose to live by those promises. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. At times when you feel like you've been abandoned, ignored, and just kind of squashed out of the of, of relationship. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And you can go through the many promises of the scripture. And I believe there is validity of simply taking the promises of God and pouring your prayers into the promises of God. When I first started out in ministry, I, I uh, worked as an assistant pastor at Simpson Memorial Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. The lead pastor at that time was a, was a man by the name of Jerry Wellborn. Uh, Jerry was a, a good, good mentor. I appreciated him. But I think, I think the thing that I appreciated most about him was, was the discipline of prayer for Jerry. And he had, tra- he had learned that from, from his father-in-law, Tracy Miller, who pastored in Camp Hill years and years ago, a great and godly man of God. But he, he, Jerry would, would put it this way. He said, I view my prayers as simply pouring those requests into the promises of God and leaving the results up to him. So he would say he would pray for his family, he would pray for his children. He'd pray for, for sons and daughters-in-law that he didn't even have yet, grandchildren. He'd, he'd pour the promises of God into those prayers on behalf of people. I believe that we can legitimately take the promises of God the thus saith the Lord, I will do this, you know, uh, the multitude of those promises and pour our prayers into them and trust him to bring to pass those things. Just like David poured his prayers, no doubt, into God. You said to me, you, your word to me was that you're going to bring a descendant upon the throne. And and I haven't seen it. And it's outlived, but, but, but you're at work and now... It comes to the time when he's able to see it. One final piece of this particular sermon is the one, is the one that's most amazing to me. I've never had anybody interrupt my sermon. I mean, well, I've, I've allowed people to interact, that kind of thing. But I've never had anybody say, stop, pastor. We need to repent today. I, I, yeah, I think that would probably give most pastors a heart attack. So, whoa, uh, no, wait, I'm supposed, that's my job. I'm supposed to bring conviction to you. So, so here you're preaching along, going along, and all of a sudden, it's like, I don't know if somebody stood up, somebody thought, this is, this is, you know, I'm sure it probably when it came to the point where he said, where he said uh, in verse 36, therefore let others be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. I'm sure that was when he went from preaching to meddling right there. Uh, made him both Lord and Christ, and so, and so when they when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. You remember last week we were talking about uh, Hebrews four twelve and thirteen in terms of the the core value. 
knowing and obeying God's law, God's word, is fundamental to all true success. And we talked about uh, at the end of the of the message, we we gave you that that story from from uh, uh, John Bechtel about here's the language, bull boy. Do you remember bull boy? You know, precious, precious. That word of God. It's that word of God that, that came to them, and it cut them. Remember, I was talking about that's one of the functions of that word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder. That's King James coming out of me. Uh, to the, the soul and marrow and all, all, all that kind of stuff. It's the piercing, cutting word of God. You know, we don't hear much about that today. We don't hear much or talk much about conviction, the convicting work of God. But God is still in the business of taking his word, letting it be seen and heard and understood, and where I'm, I'm opening my heart to him and say, Lord, you know, that's that's me. That's that's where I am. And we get cut to the heart. That's the language of it here. And so Peter goes, and this final component I would call a personal plea, verses 37 to 41, and he says, the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I, I, I said, What's the, what makes up a good sermon? What makes up a good sermon? Well, it can be the content. It can be delivery. It can be illustration. It can be a number of things. But ultimately, all of that information without this transformation is just kind of information. And you can walk out and say, well, that was an interesting sermon. I had a fellow that attended, came as a guest of a friend of ours, Jennifer, I've been trying to get this guy to come to church for quite some while. He was an African-American fellow, was a big power guy in the city of Harrisburg. And, and, and finally she got him to come to church. And so Bob was sitting with her, and second or third row back kind of thing, and, and just kind of attentive during the whole sermon. And so after we got done with the whole service, I had the habit of standing at the back and greeting people as they go. And Bob came by. I said, I said uh, Bob, I said, I'm glad you could be here today. I hope you'll feel free to come again. He says, I probably won't be back. Says all. Um, he said, "I found the service relatively uninspiring, and your message mildly boring." <laughs> well, th that wasn't quite the ex expectation I had, you know. <laughs> it, it, you know kind of, but but that was that was the response that I got from from Bob that day. Uh, but uh, we didn't have any further opportunity to speak into Bob's life. But that was an impression that he got. That was his evaluation uh, of all the kinds. So it wasn't, it wasn't, Pastor, that message today was powerful. I need to repent of my sin and give my life to Christ. Didn't happen that day. I don't know if it happened any day. But there are any number of ways of responding. We can say, we can respond. We can come to church. You can come to City Light Church. You can go to church XYZ, whatever down the road. And you can hear a message and you say, that's nice. Or you can say, hmm, interesting. Hmm, hadn't thought about that before. Hmm. I was almost tempted. I forgot. I, I forgot. I forgot this morning. I was going to bring two farm implements with me today. I was going to bring a rake and a pitchfork. And, and, and they're at home, but I forgot to pack them in the van. Uh, I was, well, uh, that's a whole side story. But anyway, but when you receive the word, you have two instruments with you. You have a rake and a pitchfork. And so you can you can either you can either get your pitchfork out and say, 
Oh, that sermon, that, that was that was for Strope over there. Get him a bucket load of that stuff, you know. Or, or you, you say, oh, oh that, that, was, that was for Casey. That was a Casey sermon. She needs to pay attention to that. Or else you can take a rake and say, God, I need this. This is for me. This is for me. And they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? There's a book uh, written by... Josh McDowell, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he, he, Josh McDowell is a little more contemporary. Well, I guess he's a generation now. But, uh, but uh, he, he, would, he would write. He wrote uh, a book called More Than a Carpenter. Uh, a mind who's a lieutenant colonel and chaplain in, in, uh, in, the, in the Army. Uh, uses that book almost on a regular basis to give to people he has opportunity to speak into their life. Gives them the book more than a carpenter, and then he begins to open up the dialogue and discussion. And then he'll give then he'll give evidence that demands a verdict because it's not just information that you want to share. You, can, you look at the verses 14 to 41 of the sermon. You can you can go into all the depth of it and the meaning and how how the Lord said to my Lord and what its Christological and theological implications are. And you can dig down in and you can get all that theology. But if you're all said and done, you say. Hmm, that's interesting. I wonder. But it's more than that. It's more, it's more taking that evidence that demands or calls for a decision on our part. They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? In the Child Evangelism Fellowship, I gave a couple people some CEF material today just to look at. We were great for working for, with children. Good, good ministry. Good ministry. In their teaching time, we had when we were in New York State, we had several gals that were in our church that were teachers in CEF, and so they would teach others how to work with children. They had a uh, a practice or a part of their teaching that they called drawing the net. Drawing the net, you convey the truth of God to children, and and then, but you don't just say. And I just memorized this and do this wordless book. And red means this, and black means that, gold means that, and green means that. And you go through all of that kind of stuff. But you give them the opportunity to respond. Sometimes we can treat our messages as pastors as informative and assume that people will do something with it. But it lasts until they get out the door. That's why I provide these study outlines to give you something to think about or chew about to come around again to give further thought to it. So when you draw the net, it's giving the opportunity for people to respond. So here's how they respond. Peter says, here's, here, here's, your, here's, here's what to do with it. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then he goes further or farther. I don't know if that was correct. He goes moves further down the road anyways, when he says, with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them. Someone described preaching as almost like trying to fight against bees. The other day I was pulling weeds and and uh, and and I wasn't quite paying attention. I had weeded that area maybe a month ago or something like that. And I, I was pulling weeds and I was out with my Bermuda shorts, cut off hair, and my short, uh, my shirt, my normal T-shirt or whatever I had on, and suddenly I, I had gloves on, and I thought, oh, what was that? And it looked like that. And there's one. Let me show you where the other ones were. Uh, 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 
but I, I got into some uh, a, a nest of yellow jackets that had set, taken up residence in, in my raised bed garden. I thought they didn't even pay me rent. You know, they just started to take up residence. So, so I got I got whacked by a few a few of, a few of those, those things along the way. They 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 didn't ask they didn't ask me if they could dwell there, but they had their point along the way. And and and. Uh, Here's the response from the congregation, from the people in the audience. I, I, I plead with you. Peter says, I plead with you. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I said uh, a moment ago that sometimes someone described preaching as like fighting bees. You, you need to, and, I, and I know that in some churches it can be very intellectual, very cerebral, from here up, but doesn't get much lower. And so... My prayer is that as we look through the message, we'll just take that to heart. Hear the message is repent and be baptized. That's 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 the call. That's the invitation. And he pleads with them with many other words. And he warned them. In the end of the verse 41, it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number daily. I'm not the one who knows the hearts of Y'all here, I might have a good suspicion. I might be accurate. I might be correct. I might not be. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're just good at sitting in the parking lot and pretending you're a used car. But sitting in a parking lot pretending you're a used car doesn't make you a used car. And by God's grace, He has to do a work of salvation in each of our lives. Now, what do we do with the truth from this sermon? We pulled it all apart. We said there's a there's a predictive element. There's, there's the place of the promises of God. There's the purposes of God. There's the plea, all of those kinds of things. I, I guess what I would remind you of is we've been talking previously about the lostness of people. We have this, this page on the back, and hopefully it's in your Bible, and it's actually got some names on it, where it talks about the most wanted list, the people that you're praying for, asking God maybe to give you opportunity to, to be salt and light, certainly before them, but to bring words to the forefront so that a decision could be made. And as you dialogue with them, there may come the opportunity for you to draw that net and say, well, have you ever come to the place in your life where you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And that opportunity may be there. And God will, will meet a, a prepared heart like the Ethiopian guy the eunuch that, that Philip was prepared servant, and they hooked up together, and and God orchestrated some kinds of things, and it resulted in him being baptized. Now, baptism isn't the end; it's the it's the external expression of an inward commitment. Someone just said, in the simplest of terms, uh, it can be a much much more theologically deep thing than that. But the point is, it it gives an opportunity for someone who has accepted Christ to make that response. We've, we had at least one young person, a young child, that accepted Jesus this summer. And we're kind of walking through process of, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to find out what's in this hole back here. You know, and the thing that I fear most is that you all don't have hot water. It's just cold water. And we're going to put that, we're going to fill that up on Monday and let it at least, at least room temperature before we dip the bell in. But but so it, maybe you're at a point where you've never been baptized here, just all over the place here in terms of repent and be baptized. So that's a very important next step. That's a whole other issue. But anyway, so what makes a good sermon? Here's the real wrap, real quick. 
You could read it at the wrap-up at the end of the study guide. Put, I put it this way. What makes a good sermon? It's one in which the word of God is declared, the purposes of God are revealed, the promises of God are assured, and the people come to the determination to do something about it. God is the one who is intimately and ultimately involved in every aspect of the message. So may we heed the words of James. Don't merely listen to the word, chapter 1, verse 22, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If in the course of time, as we deal with a variety of issues that will further arise in the book of Acts, dealing with the reality of living cross-culturally or in a, it cross-purposes with the culture of the day. If there are things that God puts his finger on your heart, he goes from preaching to meddling and brings that conviction that you need to say, I need to repent. That's it's a change of direction. I'm going this way and repenting. It says, I'm choosing to go this way. And so by God's grace, may we be people who choose to walk with our face always toward God and allow him to work in our life. So, that's Peter's sermon in 45 minutes. And, and, and it almost took a long to read that. But you'll have to dig further and uh, get into that. I, there's some other good stuff coming in Acts chapter 3 and whatnot. And, and uh, so I just didn't want to settle real long in that, but wanted to make sure we got quite some sermon today. Okay, Let's pause for prayer. So, Father... It's easy for us to say, "Oh, that was that was that's that that's like drinking out of a fire." A lot of stuff there, a lot of stuff there. We need to take some time to look further into that and dig into your word. But ultimately, it always comes down to: we hear, "Thus saith the Lord," and we need to do the response. So help us by your grace when you put the work of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit of God, to be set loose in our hearts, that we always remember that we give account of ourselves to God and, and we're not in the business of trying to be the convictor for somebody else. We need to be the ones who are brought before you and your word. And we simply want to make the obedient right response. So thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of the preaching of the gospel of Christ Romans says, and Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Greek alike. And that same word comes to our heart today. Help us to, to be quick to respond to the truth you bring to us. We'll thank you for what you'll do. We'll give you thanks and praise today in the name of Christ. We ask these things. Amen. Amen.